as you take your seats, I ask you not to be afraid. Pastor Jeff is still here. I'll be preaching today, but Pastor Jeff, Lord willing, will be back next week. We're going to take just a, a very brief break from 1 Peter. We're going to turn to Psalm 36. And as you're turning there, if you came today hoping for a sermon on Palm Sunday, I'm sorry to disappoint you today. I'll not be preaching on that, although it is Palm Sunday. And of course, next week is Easter. But we're going to look at Psalm 36. And I love the Psalms. The Psalms are good. Psalm 36, like every Psalm, has a message that is not only useful today, but I believe is urgent for today. And I hope to reveal that to you today as we look at the 12 verses of Psalm 36, where we read, To the choir master of David, the servant of the Lord, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. O continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of, the, of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. Amen. David writes this psalm, and the psalms were written to be used in the worship at the temple by the Jews. Many of them are written by David, some are written by others. But often David refers to a time in his life as inspiration for the psalm he's writing. And sometimes in that superscript at the top uh, by the chapter uh, number, you will see some historical event in David's life. This psalm uh, has nothing like us to tell us what inspired David to write this. But he's probably looking back at a time where he sees wickedness all around him, and he sees evildoers who are openly flaunting their wickedness and yet seeming to succeed, looking like they're going to accomplish the goals of evil and wickedness that they want to accomplish, maybe at David's expense, certainly at the expense of seemingly the God of Israel. And David questions, how can they get away with that? Why does God allow them to just go on in their evil? Have you ever asked that question yourself? Have you ever been in a situation where you've looked around and said, look at all this evil that's going on. Why does this happen? How are they getting away with it? 
Have you known someone who doesn't seem to have any shame at all in the evil that they do? They do it openly. They do it brazenly. And yet there never seems to be any uh, comeuppance. There never seems to be a time when they're caught out or exposed for that evil. And sometimes we even see those people, they're the richest, the most popular, the most successful uh, politically or business, sometimes in the pulpit even. We see around us what looks like wicked people, quote, getting away with it. And if you've seen that, maybe you've wondered why. Maybe you've even looked with a little envy. Man, wouldn't it be great if we could do some of those things, if we were freed from self-sacrifice and obedience to the word? What about watching the news? Maybe you've got a favorite radio station you listen to, the news comes on, or you watch the news on TV, or you watch daytime TV or reality TV, and doesn't it seem like everything is just bad and getting worse without anything to stop it and arrest it? Or any of you on social media? Woo. Sometimes the stuff that you see on social media is all just absolute garbage. When will it end? Who will put a stop to it? And are we missing out? Well, David helps us. He gives us a very present instruction for what we can do in this situation. And of course, he's going to tell us wickedness is not going to prevail. I think you probably already knew that if you've been in church. But let's look now uh, at this psalm. Come back with me, if you will, to it, and let's look through it. I'll give a brief explanation of the verses, and then we'll look at how we can find it useful in our lives today. Now, I want to start, I want to point out a couple of things. One, we're looking at poetry. The Psalms are poetry. They're not like English poetry, though. In English poetry, you try to rhyme words. That's how you let someone know there's poetry. Like the songs we just sung, there's also that rhythm that you can follow, how, how everything is arranged, so it follows a kind of rhythm. Uh, English poetry, you can often sing. Hebrew poetry is not like that at all. They use something called a parallelism. They'll take phrases, concepts, and they'll put them next to each other, and they expect you to see that they've been put together and that there's a meaning in putting them together. Sometimes the phrases add together to a greater meaning. Sometimes they show a contrast. Two phrases are about different things, and you're supposed to recognize the contrast. So I want you to be looking for that. Uh, you can look down at verse 3. Actions in the first phrase, not doing something in the second phrase. And you see, by putting those two ideas together, he gives the whole example of what an evil person does. Their actions and their inactions together. That's how Hebrew poetry works. And congratulations, you're all now experts, practically, in Hebrew poetry. As you read the Psalms, as you read Proverbs, you can do the same thing. You can look for that parallelism. I also don't want to ignore, if you have a modern translation, there'll be a little number in the middle of verse 1. Mine is number 1. Yours may be a different number. But there's a note at the bottom that'll talk about a little interpretive difficulty with this verse. It's not quite clear if David is talking about a vision that he's had about the wicked, or if he's talking about his knowledge of what the wicked are like internally. Okay, 
And we're going to, a lot of modern translations take that second view, that David is just, he knows wicked people, he knows what's going on inside them. And I think that's right, because David was also wicked at times, right? And like all of us, David started out in his sin, and so we all have an understanding of what it's like to be wicked. And so that's how most modern translations take that verse, and that's how I'm going to take it. If it's a vision, though, that David had internally about the wicked, it doesn't change the meaning, right? So you can trust these words here, but there's a little bit of difficulty there, and I wanted to address it. So if you will, come back with me to verses 1 through 4. That's going to be the first. You can divide this psalm into four sections, and 1 through 4 is the first section. And what is he talking about there? Well, he's talking about wicked people, evil people. And he's given us a description of what they're like, what their character is like. And let's look at these terms that he uses here. They are down deep in their hearts, they're wicked. You might think of that as there's the source, there's like a little motor or a little fountain of wickedness down in the heart of people. And it's constantly working, isn't it? It's constantly working, spewing up evil thoughts, evil ideals. Uh, go and do this wickedness. And parallel to that, there's no fear of God in the eyes of this wicked person. Not only does he have this little source of wickedness, he's not concerned of offending a holy God. What does he do? He flatters himself, or that word flatter can mean deceive. He flatters or deceives himself in his own eyes. So he Part of that little bit of wickedness that's spinning up in him all the time tricks him, deceives him, makes that wicked person understand incorrectly about himself in what way? That his iniquity can't be found out and hated. Another way you can interpret this verse is that he himself can't even see that he's being wicked he can't find out the evil in his own heart, even if he were presumably to search for it, because he's so inculcated, so mired in wickedness, that what he does is go around doing things, and if he stops to examine himself, himself he says, oh yeah, that was, that was morally right. What I did, that was ethical. That wasn't wrong, that wasn't sin. He deceives himself. Have you ever known someone like that, that will justify any behavior Maybe you've done that in the past yourself. And then in verse 3, I mentioned this briefly. There's some actions he does. He uses his mouth to deceive, to cause troubles for others. Right? His evil's not self-contained. He goes out and acts with his words to spread that evil and cause misery to other people. And of course, what's the opposite? He should be acting wisely. He should be doing good. And if you know how the book of Proverbs begins, if you were in our Sunday school class where we did a Bible overview and went through Proverbs, we looked at Proverbs starts with the supposition that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. So even in those two little phrases, acting wisely and doing good, the psalmist is pointing us to the idea that the fear of God leads us into wise actions good works, and when the psalmist looks at wicked men, what does he see them doing? Causing trouble, pursuing evil, 
not pursuing the wisdom of Scripture. And then in verse 4, this wicked guy, even on his bed, he's not resting. He's plotting more wickedness. That little motor, that little fountain of evil is just going. It's turning all the time. So even when he should be resting on his bed, he's thinking of evil things to do. And then look at the rest of verse 4. He goes out, he sets himself on the way that is not good. So he's, he jumps out of bed, he goes off, and what does he do? He starts doing that evil thing he was plotting. He doesn't say, I'm going to reject evil. He plots it, he goes out and does it. And what do these first four verses give us a picture of? They give us a picture of man that is mired in evil. Some might even say enslaved to evil, in bondage to evil, and unable at all to rise out of that evil. You saw there in verse 2, even if they were to consider their ways, they're so deluded, they're so self-deceived, they flattered themselves such to the point that even if they try to rise up out of that sin, what do they do? They go off into more sin. It's a cycle repeating itself endlessly, but it's not one that stays level through time. It's a cycle that goes down and down and down. If you've been getting, Bo's been texting out scripture, uh, and he's been going through passages in the book of Judges. Another great example, Judges starts, the book of Judges starts, as the Israelites come out of Egypt into the land God promised them. Starts on a high note, and it's a cycle of evil. Israel sins against God, is brought under judgment, repents, but they never go back to the level they were. They've always gone down with each cycle. And in the end, they're as bad as Sodom and Gomorrah. They saw all these miracles coming out of Egypt. We saw in the reading of the Old Testament, God warns them, don't let there be someone within the people of Israel who's hidden away in their heart their love of evil. Their commitment to pursue evil, just like the psalmist is describing. But that's what happens. And so by the end of the book of Judges, they have become as bad as Sodom and Gomorrah. They've even launched a civil war to wipe out one of the tribes, their own cousins, because they've become so evil. That's what we see in mankind. A good Reformed Baptist servant would be complete without referring to Uncle John. John Calvin, he says... As far as in them lies, the wicked abolish all distinction between good and evil and lull their conscience into a state of insensibility. I like that word, insensibility. They can't even sense, they can't perceive their own evil, lest it should pain them and urge them to repentance. Isn't that true about our evil? As we're doing it, we get that guilt, that remorse. And what do we do? We want to get rid of that feeling. We want to get rid of that feeling so we justify what we did, we excuse it, and then the next time we go to do it, it doesn't hurt as much, does it? That's that cycle, that downgrade that's going on. Calvin also says, men who are given up to a reprobate mind, that means a wicked mind, an evil mind, while they render themselves hateful in the sight of all other men, are notwithstanding destitute of all sense of their own sin. Use the fancy word, notwithstanding. I don't know if you use that regularly. Let me inter interpret what he's saying. 
is these wicked men become objects of hate among the other wicked men around them, but they themselves can't even see that they're wicked, why they're objects of hate. Now, can you imagine a whole society composed of wicked people who hate each other and don't realize what it is about themselves that make themselves the objects of hate? Does it sound like a society you know and might be living in today? I think increasingly so, right? Our society is engaged in this downward spiral of wickedness, and it seems like every day something, some new wickedness is being unfurled in our country, in our communities. This is, we could say, the characteristic behavior of mankind. In fact, we have a fancy, in theology, we have a fancy theological term for this. You might have heard it. It's called total depravity. Have you heard that term before? Total depravity. Paul talks about total depravity in Romans. In Romans 3, if you'll hold your finger there in Psalms 36 and turn to Romans 3 just real quick. Don't worry, I'm not going to preach on Romans 3. I'm tempted, but I'm not going to do it. I'm just going to point out to you that in the first couple chapters, Paul is talking about the sin of Gentiles, and he's trying to show how in all these cultures in the world, Gentiles, they're just full up of wickedness and sin. There's nothing redeeming about him. And then he turns to his fellow Jews and says, it's kind of like us as Jews, right? We also are constantly engaged in sin. That leads him to say in Romans 3, verse 9, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. He quotes about, uh, I think it's eight different verses from the Old Testament here. And look, if you look all the way at the bottom, verse 18, he quotes our little psalm here. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul uses this psalm. He recognizes what David's saying. He's saying that all mankind exists in a state, in a state, excuse me, of total depravity. You see it in the Old Testament. In the garden, Adam and Eve sin. They tell a little lie. They eat a little forbidden fruit. And what's the very next sin that we read about after the fall? It's a brother murdering another brother. That got extreme pretty fast, didn't it? And the cycle is just downward and downward and downward until God says, I'm going to wipe out the whole lot. I'm going to send a flood, wipe them off the surface of the earth. But I'll save this one righteous man and his family. And then what happens? Did the flood fix anything? No, he saved a righteous man and his family, but sin is still lurking there. The characteristic of mankind is we are... We have this total depravity. At our root, we are wicked. Total depravity does not mean that we go out and do all the sins that are possible. You understand that? It doesn't mean we rush out to murder right away, to commit adulteries right away, right away to build, make idols right away. Total depravity means in our root, in our heart, there's only evil. And that we do the evil that we can do. The evil that's available. God puts us all in a time and place. We can't all be Hitler because we don't have, all have the opportunity 
to be Hitler. But we have the root of evil within us. Some of us aren't very confident, so we don't do evil very confidently, and we don't get very far at it. Some of us do evil poorly, and we get locked up, because it causes so much damage. Other people do a lot of evil. They delude themselves. They get away with it for years. Old Testament theologian Bruce Walkie says that total depravity means, one of its meaning is that no unregenerate heart has the love of its God as a motivating principle. I think that's really good. No unregenerate heart has the love of God of its motivating principle. Isn't that what David's talking about? Even on their bed when they should be resting. Are they loving God? Are they thinking about God? No, they're plotting. What evil can I do today? What can I go out and do to get my way, to please myself? Total depravity is that each person seeks to do the sin that he or she can do and is unwilling to do what is pleasing to God. It's bondage. It's slavery to sin. That's what David tells us mankind is like. And then abruptly in verse 5, he changes course. He changes topic. Come with me to the text in verse 5. We'll look at 5 and 6. And there's a couple structural features about a psalm it's important to know. One, the middle of the psalm is usually the most important part of the psalm. And the reason is the psalmist and many ancient Hebrew uh, writers wrote in such a way to kind of create this pyramid where everything points to the middle. We don't do that, right? We have an introduction, we have main body, and then conclusion is our, you know, the, the meat of what we're wanting to get across. They do that at the middle, and they do that here in verse 5 and 6. There's another little structural clue that your translation may obscure, but in the Hebrew, verse 5 begins with the divine name, Jehovah. It's translated into your text, uh, maybe as Yahweh or as all caps Lord, all little caps Lord there. You see, in my ESV, they've moved it from the front, right? But it should be at the front of verse 5, and at the end of verse 6, the divine name appears again. We call this an inclusio, and all it really means is the author wants you to see that there's something very important that he's about to talk about right in the middle of those two repeated words, in this case, the divine name Jehovah. What is, he, what is this important thing that he wants us to get? Well, he turns his eye to God, away from the wickedness of man, and he says, your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness, all the way up to the clouds, your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep or the great abyss. Man and beast you save, Lord. The meat of the psalm here is not the characteristics of wicked man. The important point he wants us to understand are the characteristics of God. He gives us five of them. Come back and look at them with me. God can be known by his steadfast love. He can be known by his faithfulness. He can be known by his righteousness. He can, known by his, he can be known by his judgments or his justice. He can be known as a God who saves. Now, how that word saves used here is used more like providence, God's provision to mankind. But we're going to see as we go along a little bit later in the psalm, 
It also means this idea of salvation, this New Testament idea of salvation. David is seeing that in types and shadows, looking into the future. He doesn't know about Jesus Christ specifically, but he does know of that we need a Redeemer, that we need some salvation. Someone has to do it for us. He doesn't know how it's going to happen, but he knows and he leaves us these thoughts for the New Testament writers to fill us in the details of Notice here also the psalmist uses extreme language to highlight God's characteristics. If you want to look at the steadfast love of God, that's God's covenantal love. It's his special, merciful love that he has for specifically his chosen people. It's a love he gives freely, and he doesn't demand anything in return. The fun Hebrew word for steadfast love, chesed, useful if you need to clear your throat, for example. Chesed, his steadfast love, it's the type of love he shows David. It's the type of love he shows believers. And he uses this extreme language. It extends all the way up to the heavens, to the extremity. God is righteous, and they're like mountains. Now, some of you have been to the Holy Land, the mountains that aren't very big, right? But think about God's righteousness is like Mount Everest. It's huge. It's extreme. God's faithfulness, it extends. If the earth were a bowl and you poured in its faithfulness, it would rise up to the clouds. And his judgments... The Hebrews were afraid of the sea. They were afraid of the deep. They called it the abyss. And you know from Job or Revelation out or Daniel, out of the abyss come these evil creatures and these prophetic oracles. It was a place of fear and darkness, terror, and God's judgment. When he comes, it will be like that place of ultimate darkness and terror. That's how extreme God's justice is. If he comes in judgment, it will be like you're thrown into the abyss. No way out, no way to live, where these horrors and terrors lie in wait. And then when God goes to provide, when he goes to save, it's extreme. It extends not just to David, not just to Israel, but to men, even to his creation, even to the beast. Eugene Merrill, who's a noted Old Testament theologian, points out that the use of this extreme language tells us that God's characteristics are more than just these physical dimensions. They're eternal. They're infinite. He says God and his covenant promises are to be relied upon forever because he himself is irrevocably committed to the promises he has made. When God puts his steadfast love on you, not only is it as high as the heavens, it's eternal. That's what the psalmist is trying to tell us. It's extreme. When God chooses to love you, your behavior is not going to turn away his love. The wicked are not going to defeat God's love. God's not going to get bored one day and say, oh, this other guy over here is more worthy of love. His love for you is going to be eternal. It's going to start all the way back in the creation. It's part of his divine plan. He's going to 
keep that love going through his providence to you. And guess what? The New Testament tells us someday he's going to recall you out of the sinful world to dwell with him. The same for these other characteristics of God. Now, do you notice what the psalmist has done here? He spent time telling us about this cycle of depravity within mankind, and then he shifted his eyes up to these more real attributes that God has. Why do I say more real? Because they're eternal, they're infinite. They don't change, they don't go away, they don't wear down, God doesn't get tired. Man's over here in this cycle down here of evil and futility. God is like the mountains that never go away in our vision. Calvin says, whenever the corruption of the world affects our minds and fills us with amazement, we must take care not to limit our views to the wickedness of men who overturn and confound all things. Well, John's stealing my thunder here. He's getting into the application. He says, it becomes us to elevate our thoughts in admiration and wonder to the contemplation of the secret providences of God. He notices what the psalmist does. He tells us about man. He tells us about the things we can see and know, the things we're chagrined about, the evil that's going on and never seems to stop or be retarded. And then suddenly the psalmist shifts his view to God. That's a clue to our application. That's what we ought to do. I'll come back to that in a minute. Let me finish going through the rest of the psalm. Because David's going to give us some other details. Look here at verses 7 and 9. How precious is your steadfast love, O God, that has said, that covenant love. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you, in verse 9, is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. He's explaining what he meant by that last little part of verse 6. Man and beast you save. Verses 7 and 9 are basically a little explanation of that brief phrase. He tells us, uh, for example, when God goes to feed his creation, he's not stingy, but it's a feast. When God goes to give drink to water his creation, it's an abundance. It's a, the word he uses is a river. The specific Hebrew word he uses is a torrent, a flooding river. Look at that in verse 8 again. They feast. They don't just eat out of the meager meal in God's house. They feast on the abundance. And you give them drink from the rivers of your delights. I ask you, look around in creation. Does our creation have all that we need? And does it have it abundantly? We hear today that there's not going to be enough oil, there's not going to be enough iron, there's not going to be enough this or that. But yet, it exists in the creation in an abundance. And we find uses for it that serve all of mankind. Is there enough air for everybody? Well, there's more than enough. If you've been out in your garden when it rains in the spring, is there enough rain? Yeah, we get it all in about 30 seconds, right? All 10 inches. 
The birds are fed. I've got a possum that wanders into my chicken coop to eat my chicken feed. He's a fat little bugger, right? He's, he's being provided for. And that's just God's creation. Imagine what it will be like for you, believer, when God sets the marriage feast of the Lamb. It won't just be an abundance of wine. It'll be the very best wine. It won't just be some hors d'oeuvres and, you know, a little plate. It'll be a tsunami of the richest food that's available. When God gives to you himself in the worship in heaven, it won't be a miserly little gleam of light. It will be a blast of radiance that would overwhelm you if he hadn't redeemed you. That's how God treats us. Oh, how precious is your steadfast love. If we want true refuge, should we run to the wicked and their schemes and their plots? Brothers and sisters, that's what we often do. I find myself doing that. Come into work, I've got a problem. What do I do? I think of how am I going to solve this? How am I going to solve this problem? Right? Should I run to God? Yes, in prayer. It's my job. I should work on it, sure. But more often than not, I'm tempted to yell at somebody, get rid of somebody, not be patient with them. I know my kids are laughing at the idea of me yelling. Tell a little lie to smooth over the problem, right? Instead of running to the shadow of God's wings. Instead of lifting my eyes up to him and his attributes and his characteristics. And then he tells us in verse 9 that unlike the fountain that is within mankind, that's a little motor of wickedness, God's fountain is a fountain of life. God is a source of light, of knowledge, of truth. We only need to turn to him to receive this. So the psalmist then turns in the last few verses. We call this an invocation. He's going to ask God to rise up and act. Continue your steadfast love to who? To those who know you. Continue your righteousness to who? To the upright of heart, the people that already love God, not to the wicked. They are being provisioned in God's providence. That's why they get ahead. That's why they last so long as God's showing them some mercy. But to you, those who are of upright heart, those who love God, who know God, he will pour these things out to us. He'll continue them. He asked in 11, let not the foot of arrogance, let not those wicked come and stand on my throat. Protect me from them. Don't let the hand of the wicked drive me away. And then finally he says, look there. I see the wicked defeated. I see him lying there dead. Now he's talked about they're all around. I think what he's showing us is he's pointing out to us that if we would look hard enough, we just remember what looks today like a holy terror that's going to sweep all goodness and truth away is just another ism that's on its way to being defeated like the isms that have gone before. David could look back on his life and he can see where God protected him as a shepherd boy, where he fought a bear and a lion. Listen, no human fights a bear and wins. 
if the hand of God's not on him strongly. Right? If you've ever seen a lion, they're huge. Later on, when he goes and has to hide from Saul, God is protecting him. So David, looking back as he writes the psalm for use in the temple, can look back if he wants to and see where God has had the victory over all these things in the world that were terrors at the time. What does that tell you about today? Well, let's talk about that. So what? If, if I've given you the, the right interpretation here, what do you do with this? What does it mean to you? Well, let's start by looking at the principles that are here. David sees that all mankind is wicked, and yet we're stuck with them. We start as them, right? Before we become believers, we still have the flesh clinging to us. It's constantly tempting us to fall back into that wickedness. And then God has put on display for us a contrast. He's not shown his glory in such a way that would destroy us. What he's done is shown his attributes, his characteristics. Those five things David talked about, God's displayed them for us as a contrast. His expansive love, his mercy, the reach of his judgment. And David appealed, hey God, put me on your side. Don't let me be on that side, on their side. So what are the principles here? One, all mankind is desperately wicked, and that wickedness has obscured their sin to such an extent that they don't and can't think that they're sinning or fix their sin. Second principle, in contrast, God is merciful, truthful, righteous, just, and in spite of man's sin, God not only provides, but blesses the whole of his creation. David sees that for the faithful follower of God, God's provision is life and light. It's a special blessing for the faithful follower. That David must and still can call on God to continue to preserve the faithful in a special way inside all this muck and mire of human sin. Finally, the believer can be wearied by looking at the churn of the wicked and their downward trajectory, their downward progression. So what we ought to do is recognize that weariness when it comes on us. And we ought to turn our eyes from that wickedness to the, to the Lord, to Jehovah, to, to who he is, to what he shows us about himself. We have to discern the need that we have. We have to discern just how ineffectual man's approach is before we succumb to it, while we've succumbed to it if we have, after we've succumbed to it. Somewhere in that sequence, we got to say as believers, hey, wait a minute, I'm off. I've gone back to, I've stumbled into, I'm tempted to take man's way. We've got to recognize, we have to discern that it's ineffectual, that it always leads to the downgrade. Sometimes those things mankind engage in look good. Paul tells us in Colossians, a lot of times they have the, the appearance of wisdom. Paul goes on to say they just lead you to idolatry. 
Where do we see this? Famous people, right? Politicians, actors, people who are having their 15 minutes of fame. And what are they doing? Rationalizing away their behaviors, right? We look at our neighbors. We look at our unbelieving friends. Do they do the same thing? I had to do this because I needed this outcome. So it wasn't wrong for me to do it. We see it everywhere. But we rarely stop and look back at history. Let me use a let me use an example from history in the global extent. Imagine how people looked at things in the late 30s, early 40s. What was the big thing that looked like it was going to conquer the world? Fascism. Countries in Europe were falling. Armies were on the march in Asia. Will we come through it? And now those regimes have fallen. I grew up in the 80s. It was communism. We're going to have a nuclear war. Soviet Union's gone. Look at all the isms, the cults that have come and gone. In the 90s, and it looked like Mormonism was going to devour the U.S. Now it's in decline. It looked unstoppable, but it's in decline. Look at our brothers and sisters in the SBC. In the 80s, they were fighting theological liberalism, right? And then, and it really what was a groundswell among the, the rural churches, they turned that back. We can look back and we can see the fallen enemies of God if we want to. But these things keep coming back. Let me use that example of the SBC. What are they fighting today? And it looks like they may succumb. It looks really bad, right? That they may succumb again to theological liberalism. What's roiling our society? Transgenderism, homosexuality, right? And it's going to get worse. I believe it's going to be worse. We were told, hey, homosexuals just want to get married. They're not trying to change the culture. And look where we are. That was 10 years ago, folks. It's going to keep getting worse. And if we ask the question, who will stop it? Where will it all end? Are we missing out? What do we see churches doing? Stampeding to join the most recent praise what looks like it might be successful so they're not swept away. But what does the psalmist tell us we ought to do? Discern that those things are evil. See that there's a temptation for us to compromise the word. And then what are we to do? Turn our eyes to the attributes of God. Turn away from the mire of human sin as believers and call on God, God, pour out your steadfast love on us. Show us your mercy. Look there. Look how transgenderism is going to end up just like fascism. It's going to end up just like the Soviet Union. It's going to do its evil in its time, but it's not going to succeed. 
So these things come around, we get wearied by them. We need to recognize them and turn our eyes out of sin and misery to God. If you're spending your time on social media, I'm, I follow stuff on Twitter. There's a lot of great stuff on Twitter, and there's a lot of trash. And some days, you know, before I even get out of the bathroom in the morning, I'm like, where's this all going? Right? I've fallen into that trap of gazing too long at the downward churn of mankind. TV news. If you turn on the news and you watch it all day long, what are you going to see? Every evil, wickedness, and it looks successful. If you watch reality TV, I know none of you watch reality TV, right? But what do you see? One worse reality TV show after another. And I don't mean, you know, dumber than the next, but more wicked, more wicked principles being applied, being shown one after the other. What do we turn to? Activism. Politics. We've got to get the right man in. He'll fix everything. Now, folks, I'm not saying that don't watch news ever. I'm not saying don't be on Twitter ever. Maybe. Right? I'm not saying don't go out and vote. See what I'm saying? Let's not, we can't replace the Word of God, who God is, with those things. They can't then become our driving force. We need to see when we're doing that and then turn our eyes to those attributes of God. Let me read them again. Your steadfast love, O Lord. It's permanent. It extends to the heavens. How can a politician help us if God's steadfast love is eternal? Your faithfulness is to the clouds. If we're overwhelmed by the next ism, does that mean God's going to forget us? By no means. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Will God change what is right and wrong by the whims of whatever is popular in mankind? No. And your judgments, they are judgments of abject horror. They're coming on this world. They're coming on sin. Now when we turn our eyes away from the misery of mankind, don't we have pity for them? They're going to judgment. Don't they desperately need the gospel like we received? We do. So if you're an unbeliever today, and uh, I'm, wa- I'm wrapping up here, recognize that you are fundamentally broken. The fall has rendered you incapable of pleasing God if you're an unbeliever. In fact, the Bible says that even the things you call good acts are just done in rebellion against God. If you are an unbeliever here today or you're hearing my voice, you are spiritually dead. We saw in our reading of the gospel that it's the Son of Man who has the authority to make live again. That the people in the tombs are coming out someday. Some are coming out to be embraced by Christ, but others are coming out to their judgment. Which one are you? If you're an unbeliever, you're hurtling towards judgment. And as the psalmist describes, you either become or will become a person who is so deceived that you can't even recognize the condition you're in. You'll rationalize your sin, you'll excuse it, 
You'll actually be so deluded that you'll think what you're doing are, quote, good deeds, good acts. If you've come to realize that, you need to put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ. Only he can save you. You need to repent of your sins. And like believers, you need to start looking on the attributes of God. Only in him, through Jesus Christ, can you be saved. You can't be saved by your works. You can't start today to do good works. You can't think, oh, in a few more weeks, I'll be done with all this sin, and I'll start then, because it's not your good works. Christ saves. We can only apprehend, we can only seize that righteousness, Paul tells us, by having a faith like Abraham's. A faith in Christ. If you're a believer, it's true that there's a constant temptation from our flesh to sin. But it is also true that there's a constant temptation in watching the world to turn back and be like the world. All that inventiveness in that little motor of sin looks pleasing to our flesh. It's new, it's novel. Maybe it's the way to get ahead. Again, we see the wicked prospering. Do we have to do what they do to prosper? Sometimes we are tempted to ask that question. Sometimes we have this fear of missing out. Sometimes people do wickedness to loved ones, to children, to us. We say, why does God do nothing about it? God's delaying. He's delaying to show mercy, just like he showed mercy to you. There are still people out there that God is showing mercy to. If God came in his judgment now and ended that, they would not come in to his kingdom. God wants to display his mercy widely. So he shows mercy to the whole earth. He shows his providential care to the whole earth. He keeps it going. So what happens is we can begin to stumble because we watch the wicked too intently. We can can become envious. Have you experienced this? We have the fear of missing out. FOMO, have you heard that term? The fear of missing out. We can spend our time on social media, on TV news. What we end up doing is dwelling on what man is instead of who God is. And what we ought to do is turn our eyes to him. Look, God, Christ is already victorious. Christ is already victorious. He's already won. I asked this question in Sunday school today, and everybody answered. Christ has already defeated sin and death. He's already won the victory. David says we can look around and see the defeated enemies of our Lord. There they lie, the psalmist says. So we ought to turn our eyes to Christ. And we need to keep turning our eyes back to Christ. So it's okay to engage in these activities, but we've got to watch, we've got to discern when they begin to replace Christ in our life. When they begin to obscure him, Christ is the source of truth. Christ is abundant in truth. What we need to know to be good Christians is found here. It's not found in self-help. It's not found on the news. It's not found in cults. 
It's found here in the Word of God. And he didn't give us a pamphlet, did he? He gave us something we could study. He gave a part. God himself dwells among you to help you understand this in the person and work of the Holy Spirit. God gives abundantly. So our purpose was to see that David in his psalm is telling us, in conclusion here, not to be drawn down in the carnal decline of mankind. Instead, David shows us an example. In the psalm, he lifts his thoughts to dwell on the qualities of Jehovah, his righteousness, his steadfast love, and the abundance of it, how he pours out these good things, especially for believers. Do you believe that today? You're a believer? If you do, begin practicing it. When we're done today, look for where you're getting lured into the futility of man's sin to watch it, to look for solutions there, to let it appear Christ. I'm not saying don't watch TV at all. I'm not saying don't follow a politician. But discern when they have taken over in your heart the place that Christ occupies, the place that Christ occupies. Put him back there. Turn our affections. When you realize you're in that situation, turn your affections to Christ. Build the habit of it. We are being sanctified, believers. God is in the process of conforming us to the image of of his Son. That is work you can do. They're not good deeds where you earn your faith. They're work that you do on yourself to show the faith that you have. One of those things you can do is begin to discern the situation and build the habit of turning away from the churn of mankind to the attributes of Christ. So when you see bad news and you're overthrown by it, the new isms coming out, all my friends have turned to it. Where is this leading? Oh, wait. God's steadfast love is eternal. God doesn't change what is right and wrong. When the politician you're following fails you, what do we do? Let's turn to Christ. Let's turn to Christ. Christ has already won the victory. No longer do we need to have the fear of missing out. Instead, we need to cling all the more tightly to Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly God, Heavenly Father, God in heaven, help us to do these things. We cannot do these things out of our own power. We tried to do them. We too would fall right back into our sin and our misery. Give up your spirit. Pour it out on us. Aid us. We love you. We desire to seek you. Help us. Help us to discern when we are wandering away. Draw us back. Be patient with us and draw us back to the cross. Lord, we pray that you do it daily, that you do it hourly that you do it to the rest of our lives. Lord, we pray, each one of us who are believers here, that you would bring us eventually into the heavenly place where we can see you with our very own eyes. We pray that you'll do all these things in the name of Jesus Christ.